I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And every time we do this, you look surprised that it's your turn to speak, both of you. It's just every time you do this, it looks like you're both like, oh, my God, what's it's my name? I gotta say something. anyone would want to know my name. That just makes me laugh every time. <laughs> I just think it's yeah, funny I'm because I say, myself to the we world. do this every week. <laughs> I know. Sometimes more than once. For the record, and I I'm say, not surprised. Well, For I know. Record, it's I not, not that surprised. you... Once it, when people hear it, they're probably not hearing the surprise, but there's this moment where you're like, oh, I've got to say something. That's what it looks like on your faces. And then your brains and the quickly go possible like... possible thing to say is your name, and you yeah, can't right. even handle that. Like, right, right. <laughs> you can't do it. But anyway, you're listening to a podcast for the Incurable Reader. It's called Close Reads. You know that by now. We're here to discuss Walter Wangerin's book, The Book of the Duncow. And we're going to talk about part two. And... Uh, then that means next week we're going to talk about part three. And oh, then we're going to talk oh. about part four. And then yeah. Q&A. And we're going to move on to an Ernest Gaines book. Gathering of like Old Men. Medieval yeah. cosmology. That's right. That's right. It's a nice segue. Before we get going, what, what else is going on in y'all's... Like, talk, let's talk about the Plays the Thing, for example. Tim, where are we in the Plays the Thing? What should people go look for and listen to? Day after tomorrow, we'll be recording Act 4 of The Taming of the Shrew. I don't think we've dropped any of the... Um, the episodes yet, but the first should be coming out fairly soon. I have also... I think by the time this up. episode airs, yeah. it should be up. Okay, great. I've also lined up an exciting interview with the um, author of a new book about how to think like Shakespeare. I will be announcing plans for that recording shortly. Have I ever told you about how we have these soaps in the store that are like all literary themed? It's a really silly thing that bookstores have, right? But yeah. one of them is called like Shakespeare soap or something. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I can't even remember exactly what it smells like. But this little kid came up to me, holds the soap up and says, is this what Shakespeare was supposed to smell like? Oh. <laughs> and I, How did you respond that? to that? I, I said, I don't know what yes. I said. In my head, I said, yes, I don't know is. if anybody wants to smell what Shakespeare smelled like. He lived... A long time ago and the odors just generally speaking were of a different category than what we normally live live with so an olfactory assault every time you stepped out the door so i said why yes son it is hashtag olfactory assault it wasn't my son though i don't know i don't know why i would have called him that i'm not like an old man (laughs) unlike tim whose birthday is you see what i did See what I did? It's a great segue. I knew something like that was coming. It's it's today's from Tim's you, birthday. From you kids. I knew you kids were up to something. Get off my lawn. I'm Tim, so happy, glad to be happy with birthday. David in this moment. I'm gonna hold on to this memory. Because that's not how it usually goes. Tim, how how is how is celebrating your birthday on September 15th? It's great. It's great. And I want to say very quickly. I have already received two gifts from the Close Reads community. One of them is a gift certificate to a really nice restaurant, and I am right on. really excited to go to it. I will be posting pictures when I do go to it. The other is... Um, just, just tell me when we're going to go together. Just tell me what date okay. that is that I'm supposed to I'll show let you know. I'll you. let you know. All you right. can Uber down from Charlotte. <laughs> I have a car, but that's fine. Um, the other is riffing off last week's story, or two weeks ago, in which David and I were being um, 
were, in which I told the story about my friend who received a dozen white roses on the second date that she went out on. And my brother and I were looking at each other across the table with great skepticism, <laughs> later to be proven right by this cad. I received from close readers, the Joe Coast readers, a dozen white roses today. And it was fantastic because it's actually, it's like really nice to get like flowers. I really like to get flowers. And so I really enjoyed that. Women really like to get flowers on dates. This is what I'm saying. Okay. Okay. I, (laughs) I did some deep research. So I have been seeing a woman. And, and we started seeing each other news? not so long ago that I said, hey, I'm going to withhold her name. Hey, um, I, I had told her the story about this friend of mine who, you know, on the second date got ambushed with a dozen roses. <laughs> and I said to this woman that I'm dating, I said, um, what if I had showed up with a – no, 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 back up. I think at the beginning, Heidi, she kind of sided with you. She was like, oh, what a romantic gesture. A, d- a dozen roses, you know? And I was like, I have no objection to a dozen roses. That sounds great. It's mm-hmm. the timing. And I said, I just want you to imagine that I'd shown up with a dozen roses at our second date. And she said, that would have been too much. And I was I like, I do actually yes. agree with you. Yeah. You I, just I, came on a little strong about it. You know what I mean? It was like, this is like the worst a moral problem thing that any human could <laughs> Nucle- ever do. Nuclear <laughs> war. Nuclear right. war. Um, terrorism, right? Uh, right. Roses Trag- tragic day. viruses and a dozen roses on the second date. That, yeah, that I, was... did, I did go in hard. Part of the reason I went in hard, this is a little bit of a justification, is because I know how that relationship ended for my friend, and I'm still mm-hmm. mad at the dude. My brother is still mad at the dude. So I'm kind of channeling. I'm like, mm-hmm. see what you get when you get a dozen roses on the second date. That's what you get. I see. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, happy birthday, Tim. Thank you, David. Thank you, Heidi. We love you dearly. I love you guys. Actually, I was going to send you a dozen roses on your birthday too, but then I found out that the Joe Coast readers were doing it, and that seemed excessive. But I did have the idea. (laughs) So when I send you twelve dozen roses tomorrow, up in the ante, will how will you feel about that? Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, people are not here to listen to us talk about um, roses. Well, maybe they are. I don't know. But so far, we've never gotten any indication they are. And so we need to talk about the book of the Dun Cow. Um, This is part two of this book. I have a question that was kind of a conundrum for me as I was as I was reading this this part. I kept thinking about Pilgrim's Progress when reading this book because not because it's pure allegory in the way that Pilgrim's Progress is. But because these animal characters are, you know, so archetypal, but in a context that is so clearly meant to offer some kind of Christian framework for looking at the world. So I wanted to throw this question out there. In what ways should we read this book differently than we do a book like Pilgrim's Progress or a book that is a really mm. clear allegory. Um, I, I think we probably all have slightly, this book is, seems to be just based on our off mic text threads quickly. I think this book is for each of us, we have different mileage with it. And that, that seems to be the case with the audience as well. Mm. Um, based on 
messages I'm getting and emails I'm getting and then like just people's chatting. <clears throat> and I'm not surprised about that based on what I've heard about this book coming into it. But I'm wondering if perhaps it's about not just expectations, but about like approaches to reading this book that is like either that approach is not appealing or it's the wrong approach to a book like this. So Heidi, I want to start with you because you have, you've had your finger on like the medievalism in, in this book from the get go. That's something that really excites you. Um, I think you like this book a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering like for someone like me, who's like, wait, is there a way, is there a sense in which like, I can't decide if he wants this to be in the same genre or tradition as something like Pilgrim's Progress. Because mm -hmm. it's not Lord of the Rings, but it's not Pilgrim's Progress. It seems to be somewhere in between. And so I'm trying to figure out which one of those I'm supposed to read up more like. Right. Yeah. So Pilgrim's Progress is a, I mean, a very, very straightforward allegory to the point right. that the characters have the name of what they represent. Right. Um, and in that sense, it is a pretty medieval allegory, but a true medieval allegory uh, is a very specific and technical thing. Like it, there is a technical definition for a medieval allegory. The Book of the Dung Cow is not it. Um, in a medieval allegory, there's a one to one correlation between a situation and the characters and what they represent. So this is, you know, like Spencer's The Fairy Queen is, of course, the uh, uh you know, the main medieval allegory, the, the most well-known medieval allegory in which there's uh, a queen and she represents um, Queen Elizabeth and she also represents the church and that's what she represents, right? And there's no, there's, there's no real room for, um, for any other interpretation. It's not very subtle. It's really obvious. Um, and the medievals loved allegories and excelled at writing allegories and talking about allegories. Uh, most of them were very spiritual uh, because their world was so orderly. Their literature was, of course, very orderly. Um, and uh, so that that's not what we have in the Book of the Duncow. And Walter Wenger Jr. addresses this issue directly and says, as Tolkien does, this is not an allegory. And because both of them, Tolkien was a professional medievalist and Walter Wengren Jr. was obviously an enthusiast of um, medieval themes and symbolism and literature. Um, both of them were saying it's not an allegory in that technical sense. Now, that doesn't mean there's not allegorical elements to the story that we're seeing really clearly here. Worm is clearly an allegory for, for the devil, for the nature of evil. Um, and, and so in that sense, it's allegorical, but it doesn't quite fit to the technical literary definition of medieval allegory. And so when Tolkien and Walter Wenger Jr. are saying it's not an allegory, that's what they mean. Um, they're saying it's not a technical allegory. But it still has obvious allegorical elements to it. Tim, how do you approach those allegorical elements? I don't, I'll throw you under the bus, so to speak, a little bit here, because I don't think you have the same enthusiasm for the book that Heidi does. And I think I'm somewhere in between. And you can, we can address that if you want, but I'm curious how that, how the allegorical nature of this book or the, there, as Heidi said, it's not a true technical allegory, but there is an allegorical-ness. There's an allegorical essence to it or tone to it or right. whatever. I don't yeah. know what you want to say. How does that read for you? Is that part of what you kind of struggle with? Well, I, I think it is part of what I struggle with. I actually have a question for Heidi. 
So if, um, let's make a continuum. Let's say the Lord of the Rings, while though it's like very low allegory, and let's say that the Fairy Queen or Pilgrim's Progress is high allegory. Would you say that the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is sort of middle allegory? Uh, I mean, yeah. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is more of a straightforward medieval allegory. Yeah. Um, in, in keeping with like the Fairy Queen. Yeah. I mean, it's still a modern novel um, in terms of structure and development. It has a, a different kind of feel to it than something like the Fairy Queen. But in terms of what I was talking about, in which you have in a true medieval allegory, you have a one to one correlation. Yeah, that fits more with The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Um, and I think the Book of the Dun Cow is more allegorical in terms of a technical definition of allegory than Lord of the Rings, like okay. by a long shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would agree. So I think part of the joy of reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is that because I'm so familiar with the kind of allegorical framework that he's using, that there's a certain delight that I get when I recognize mm. the allegory. So, you, Oh, this is Aslan is... Yeah, this is, right. This is right, clearly right. This Jesus. Is clearly Syrian. Christ here. Yeah. Um, Turkish delight. Like that feeling of cracking Stay the code. away. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. That's a perfect way of describing it. You're cracking the code. Turkish delight as sin. You guys stay away from sin. Stay away from the white witch. It's the devil, you know. And there hmm. is this delight in cracking the code. I'm struggling to crack the code with um, the book of the dun cow. And I don't I imagine know. there's a lot of readers who are feeling the same way. So for me, the question is, is it because I don't know the medieval cosmology that he is operating within well enough to kind of delight in cracking the code? Or is it because he is um, a little bit looser in his kind of positioning of these different traditional elements? And because there, he's a little bit looser, let's say, than than Lewis is in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, maybe that's the reason that I'm having a hard time kind of identifying the different elements of the allegory and thus taking a little bit less delight in it as compared to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah, I think it's a really good question because I think a lot of my – delight's a really good word, by the way. Great word. Um, that kind of like, Eureka, I found yeah, it. I'm feeling like right. it's because – I know a lot about medieval literature. And so I, and there's a lot more than just the allegorical elements that. And you like are, medieval literature a lot I too. I love medieval literature. Um, but I also like, there's things about modern literature that I like better than medieval literature. For example, the straightforward and honest exploration of negative emotion. I like that about modern literature and the medievals stayed away from that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. in, in their literature. And so that's in the book of the Dun Cow. It's just this kind of exploration of the despair and the sadness and the grief that's in the world. And that's kind of missing from medieval literature. And so I love how they're blended together a lot. And, but to your point about the delight of cracking the code, I feel that a lot in reading this book and that I will be, I'll be honest. I think that could potentially be a weakness in the book because you don't want to write a novel that you have to have some kind of like secret knowledge in order for just regular people to read your novel. Mm -hmm. And so much of what I'm loving about it 
is catching some of those things. You know, the, the legend of the basilisk, um, of the dream vision motif that goes through, that's very medieval. The folk ballad that we have in, uh, that foreshadows the death of the chicks. These kinds of things that are found in medieval literature and kind of uprooted and transplanted into a modern novel. I like that. Eureka, oh my gosh, look, I found yeah. the Ptolemaic universe yeah. in this novel. And so in that sense, I think... I'm having a delight that might be denied to the average reader. Mm-hmm. And that might end up being a weakness of the novel, not a strength. So it's interesting because I think when I get to a lot of those moments, whether it's the basilisk thing or whatever, I can almost, I can recognize them as significant somehow, or I have some kind of impression that that's coming from something. But in a lot of cases or in several cases, I don't know the specifics of it. And so while it feels like it's, because it feels significant, it's not even that you don't have that eureka moment. It's this moment of the opposite of a eureka moment where you're, you're frustrated because you feel like you're supposed to know something because it seems like it's significant, but then you don't know what it is. Whereas if it's like truly subtle or subtextual and it's there, I wouldn't, I might not know that it's significant, but you would know that it's significant, but then I don't feel a loss because I didn't, I don't know that I don't know. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Whereas when you know that you don't know what's going on, you, yeah, you feel, feel kind of like dissonance. on the outside. Like, I don't get it, but yeah. maybe I should. And does that mean I'm not a good reader? Like, yeah. Why can't I read this story about roosters? <laughs> yeah. And so. I feel like Tim and I are probably, like, you're so enthusiastic about medieval lit. You've read so much of it and you, you know, you studied a lot. And Tim and I probably respect it and like it, but have different, we can only all love and truly study so many things, right? Like when we read Shakespeare, there's so much right. stuff that, Tim, well, both of you, but like Tim, especially from as a performer and a playwright, he gets at that I could, that I'm going to miss and I'm going to feel that gap. And there's probably some, something that I'm into that you guys would feel the same way too. Like, I don't know, something lowbrow, like spy novels or something, but um, Los Angeles detective novels from the forties. Um, <laughs> Actual writing we, technique. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I think that I, I've, I imagine that for a lot of people who have a harder time with this book, that's part of it. And so then that causes you to be like, like Tim and I were talking a little bit, I think, Tim, how did you put it? Like one of the things that you have a hard time with that I um, empathize with is it sometimes feels like, like, what's the, why is this happening? Like, right. what's the motivation for this action that's happening here? This animal does this. And then this next thing happens and this animal makes a decision. And so sometimes that seems pretty tied up in some kind of significant image or legend or symbol or something. Mm-hmm. And so if you're putting it together like a puzzle, those things make, to make sense because those symbols and images have relationships. Right. But if you don't know that, if you, if you don't already know those, what those symbols and relationships mean, then it feels like you're doing two different puzzles instead of one yeah. puzzle. Yeah. Does yeah that- I, think, I think that's exactly right, David. I, I find myself kind of longing for our author to stick with a consistent viewpoint or maybe two or three or four viewpoints. Like I love it if we stuck with the rooster's viewpoint and the dog's viewpoint and... And by viewpoint, you just mean like point of view, like the angle. Yeah, just the narrative point of view. Um, Because I, that's what I, and I I think that desire is a, like, I want this to be a piece of modern literature in which 
we're kind of it, it, the the psychological realism of modern literature is a little bit more present because to hide in your point i don't know medieval lit well enough that i that i feel delight when i kind of stumble upon this trope that you know from 1100 and i See, I kind of lean toward thinking this is, as Heidi was suggesting, a shortcoming in the book because it's not as if I'm unprepared about medieval lit. Like I've read Boethius and I've read Anselm and I've read Chaucer and I've read Dante. I've read Dante like multiple times. What you're saying is you're at least semi-educated. Yeah, (laughs) I'm at least semi-educated. And so I, I kind of think, man, is the readership if this book, if the enjoyment of this book is contingent upon some level of knowledge and a fairly rich knowledge of medieval tropes, structure, etc., then the number of people who can enjoy this book is really small. And one of them, we already know, it's Heidi White. And like, you know, do we have like eight more in North America right now? I'm being kind of, I'm saying it in a kind of a cynical fashion, but if I think about this book is, if this book is enjoyable only if you have a fairly deep knowledge of medieval literature, I think you've got a really limited number of readers and I do think I would chalk that up as a weakness of the book. Heidi, go I ahead. I'm going to respond to that. Yeah, I please. Think, I think that's overstating it. Um, I think it's a fair criticism and one I brought up. Like, I'm the one who brought up that criticism, mm-hmm. and I think it's a fair one. I know lots of people who love this book who, know, who don't know a lot about medieval literature. So it is more than that. And it's not that hard to go out and figure and find it right like i i would be willing to bet it's more than that for you it's more than just i don't really know about what a cockatrice is or the legend of the cockatrice being laid by some kind of like infected rooster like that's not a like for me that's part of the delight but it's much i i love the novel for other reasons Mm -hmm. i just like that feeling i like the word delight Mm -hmm. um because delight to me sometimes is like an extra, like, oh, I'm so delighted with this, mm-hmm. right? Um, like this effervescent, like response, um, which I do feel that when reading it. But this is a fable and uh, kind of a really, it's a kind of a weird book. It's just kind of weird. I've never read a book like it. And so I also think that that kind of experimental fiction that he's doing is going to appeal to some people and not to others. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that there's certain things about the writing and the pacing that I think is really quirky and, and experimental. And I think it totally works. Like in some mm-hmm. sense, this is a very medieval novel. And in another sense, it's almost postmodern because it's trying all of these different things. And um, and I like the kind of piecing together the dissonance that that creates. But I all and I think that the emotion is deep and like the epic battle between good and evil. I love Beast, I, I love like beast narratives, like Animal Farm, and I love those kind of books. And so I think that this one is, I've just never read a book like this ever in my life. And I am finding such joy in it. Um, 
And I think there's lots of things that he's trying, our author tried to do in the book that some people are going to say this totally worked. And some people are going to say, this is the weirdest book I've read all year. I don't Mm -hmm. like it at all. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be pretty divided. And I don't think it's just the medieval thing. I I find the book kind of weird, but I don't know that like, I'm not put off by the weirdness. I don't think I'm put off by the weirdness. The thing I think I keep getting stuck on is the happenstance nature of the action. I like things happen. Yeah, I understand this. You you get what I'm saying, David? It's yeah. Like events happen, and then other events happen, and then other events happen, and there's aside from the big overarching thread of evil, which is building and which is compelling. That part of the book is really compelling to me. Um, I think there's lots of opportunities for like heightening dramatic intrigue that I just, I think they're just lost. They're just kind of stepped past. For example, the discovering of the death of, what is the name of the hen who's been with- um, Beryl. Beryl, yeah. The death of Beryl and the three chicks. I thought that was such an opportunity for like, oh my goodness, the, the, the evil is really hitting close to home now. And I felt like our author missed that opportunity because... You mean because of the point of view and all that? Because of the it, point of view. I think because of the point of view. Because you I saw mean, it from, from a distance through the fox. Exactly. Right. Now, now on the one hand, like if I'm going to play devil's advocate here... Yeah. Well, what he's trying to do there, it seems to me, is that point of view of the fox creates moral tension mm-hmm. because the fox has to feel guilty about it. That's like that's what kind of that scene does as he sees it, and then he's like, "I was asleep. What could I?" Have? That that's the idea. The problem, though, is to your point regarding point of view. Your point yeah. regarding point of view is we don't know that fox very well. Exactly, and exactly, David been given a lot of time to get to know him and so we don't it's hard to process this moment with him when we don't know him well so i do understand that now i don't want to use this whole episode to just like right talk about the things we don't like but i but i think there is i think it's fair for us to you know have a respectful conversation (laughs) respectful conversation on things that we're having a hard time with because we're not going to there's going to be a lot of readers who feel the way you feel i think i'm in between the two of you like in Mm. terms of like i do have a problem with that I don't know. Problems. The problem sounds like I'm talking to my kids. I have a problem with that behavior. Um, I like, I, I don't love the, the way he uses point of view. I don't t- typically like books that change points of view a lot anyway, though. So that's like a personal fo- foible. <laughs> um, Lonesome Dove was like the first book where I was like, okay with them to be being told through like multiple points of view. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, so I get that but I also think there's some really beautiful writing in it. And it seems like he's trying to do something really difficult and profound. And in some moments he pulls it off, I think. So I would like to at least Heidi acknowledge that let's talk about some of those moments. I I was talking to um, Nancy, shout out to Nancy. I've shouted her out before she helped me out in the store here. She said she read this book years ago. And when she read the first two or three, the first two parts, I think she said she really didn't like it. She said when she read part three and part four by the end, she really liked it. Huh. So it might be one of those things too, where the second half of the book, as the action picks up, 
it begins to shed new light on what's happening previous. Mm-hmm. But of course, mm-hmm. we're all reading this for the first time. And so we're processing it live as it were. Um, not live at all, but you know what I mean? Not yeah. live for the listeners, but live for us. And so, um, you know, that, that may change things as we go. So I wanted to just acknowledge that, that we're processing that we're processing this book in media race. Yeah. Um, but let's, Heidi, what are some of the moments, some of the scenes that for you in particular stand out, particularly in part two, obviously as like the, the moments that were really moving to you and that you particularly, that you particularly took a lot of delight. Right. In? I'm really glad you asked me that question, David, because I don't, I don't want to be just like the nerdy medieval girl because I actually love this book for other reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's why I wanted to like, not, so we thank don't, you. it goes yes. beyond that yes. stuff. Um, I think that my heart feels very knit to Chanticleer. I think so. Chanticleer is and used in medieval literature all the time. Like he's a very, very famous um, character. Chaucer, of course, is his most famous, um, you know, use. But, there, but he's he's in a lot. Um, and never have I seen him humanized before. He's always a cipher. He's always. Um, you know, very, very one-dimensional. And this book succeeds, I think, so profoundly in exploring the nature of leadership, the loneliness of leadership, and the the risks and the temptations of leadership. Um, He's tempted by pride. He's tempted by self-pity. He's tempted to, uh, he's tempted to lord over his subjects um, and impose his will in a, in a wicked kind of way. Um, and of course, in the kingdom of the worlds, in the other kingdom, the um, Chanticleer's, uh, or excuse me, Cockatrice's kingdom, cynics gave in to all those temptations, the temptation to, uh, to, uh, to be lazy and not to impose the order that's needed for a hierarchical world. Um, and, and, and Chanticleer battles those temptations in such a, even though he's a rooster in such a human way. Um, and I find myself caught up in the trajectory of his leadership and, um, and, in the, like in the peaks and valleys of his, I think, very well-developed inner life. I think that that's something Walter Wangern Jr. did so beautifully in this book. And I'm like emotionally tied to this character and his great love for his bride, um, his protective feeling, his grief about losing his children. I thought that was very beautifully drawn, actually. I loved the surprise like Beryl goes out to look for, I love that we missed out completely on, you know, we, we switched from Beryl who's going out with this, like to gather her chicks. And then the next thing, you know, she's dead and broken with these little dead fluffy chick bodies. I just was, I was totally blind. So I didn't know it was coming. Um, I mean, I knew the chick, something bad was going to happen to the chicks, but that like the four he foreshadowed that so well and then i i thought that the the shift in point of view worked because i was surprised when it happened i knew it was coming and yet i was surprised when it happened because it happened in a different way than i had expected and so that that to me i think worked but i also think that tim what tim's saying is probably fair so it's just interesting when you say the point of view in that scene doesn't work, just to, yeah, not to focus on what you think doesn't work, but 
do you mean that it should not have like do you want it to have been in like where we're there in the moment while the barrel and the chicks are getting killed or more about how they discover it happening how they discover it yeah and, and that's how i feel i yeah. wanted chanticleer to discover to discover them because i think that would have furthered the things that heidi likes about the book that actually mm-hmm. i like about the book also yeah. like i love the kind of that aspect of chanticleer like heavy is the head that wears the crown um and to have barrel and those chicks die kind of under his watch, even though he's away from the action. I, I think that would have added to the, the weight and burden of leadership that, that Wangerin is developing really well in the book. Tim, I think you should write a play that's a version of this called Heavy is the Head That Wears the Comb. Ooh. I love that. I, just, I, love I like the ennobling of chicken culture because... I think chickens are hilarious. <laughs> so I it's like took me a while to like, I'm so confused that. by this. I'm I, this book, I honestly <laughs> find this book so confusing That's because what I do too. That's why I like it so much. So like, like, what in the world is going on? <laughs> why do the bears and the foxes and the wolves listen to the rooster? The rooster is a so medieval like, symbol of authority. I, but why? Just because they're like authority over chickens. I don't know. There's, they I mean, why crow? do we pick, why did we pick what we pick, right? There's just part of their, the, what did the we rooster pick? Lions? was like a very, yeah, the rooster well, was like a very they... ennobled animal in, to the medievals. And so like, the, I yeah, think chickens I mean, are funny. I yeah, just think they yeah. look funny and everything about them is funny. They act funny. There's nothing, yes. we, they're like, we eat them. Yes, I've never thought way that of them we as don't some eat. kind of like orderly hierarchy of or like a picture of the cosmos. And I just right. think it's kind of great that that's what he picked. Yeah, there's like a <laughs> there is there is an irony to that, which I just have a for me it's like so weird that the suspension of disbelief, I can't stop thinking about it. Is for me Oh yeah, yeah. Like yeah. I can't stop trying to figure out why the fox doesn't or the dog doesn't just eat this stupid rooster. And Do like you guys know that um when we were, I'm not even. I don't even think that's a criticism. It was just me. Yeah. When we were at the Circe conference the day before, a bunch of you us ate went a to the beach. No, but we were closely observing. Excuse me, pelicans. You know these pelicans out on Foley Beach in Charleston loved to zoom over the water, and there were a bunch of us that were out there. And I remember I was talking to our friend Jesse, and I was like, Jesse, the pelican used to be a symbol for Christ, a kind of like animal. St- symbol stand in for Christ. Because if I recall correctly, pelicans um, nurse their youngs within the kind of like their pouch beak. And I think also there's a little, there's a mistranslation maybe in the Vulgate that also maybe lent to that. I can't remember the story. David, your sister surely knows the story. But anyway, yeah, probably. all of that to say, the pelican as a symbol for Christ has always been like, that's kind of a confusing one, you know, like sometimes symbols just don't really resonate unless we have kind of like the full symbol system surrounding that single symbol. That was a complicated sentence. Sometimes <clears throat> symbols can be confusing. According to Tim's favorite dictionary or encyclopedia, Wikipedia, it says here in medieval Europe, the pelican was thought to be particularly attentive to her young to the point of providing her own blood by wounding That's her own breast when, when no other food was available. Yeah, she feeds her babies with her own blood. That's, why That's what it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, our friends 
the Andrews over at Center for Lit, they have, I think they have the Pelican Club as one of their book clubs and the Pelican is part of their logo or something like oh, that. Oh, really? So, yeah. Um, well, this that episode's was- going to be a little bit shorter than normal. So I want to um, just make sure we talk, make sure we give you each chance to talk about things that you want to talk about. So Tim, you were about to say something. Well, I, I just brought up the Pelican as an example of that symbol for Christ. It doesn't like, make if you don't know what it is, sense. it feels weird. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 And likewise, maybe for you, the rooster. Yeah. And like, even if, see, it, it's funny because even if I know that intellectually, books are weird because you can, you're, you have to like remind yourself of what you know intellectually to get your emotions, to get the pathos to, to work for you in a book. So I understand that, but I still find it like weird. And so I have to keep reminding myself, you know, and I, so I, so then I can't stop thinking about how weird it is to me that roosters, which all my friends who have roosters hate the roosters. <laughs> Cause oh, they're annoying. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, and so like all the stuff, every rooster I've ever met wanted to like kill my sister or, you know, eat it. <laughs> Like that, so they're like, it's just weird to me. Um, so, I mean, again, it's totally a personal thing, but how often do we do personal things, our personal experiences get in the way of reading books, right? And likewise, I mean, how much do our view, our views on symbols, they're so shaped by our inheritance. For example, yeah. the founding fathers were going to either choose the bald eagle or the wild turkey, as the kind of emblem yeah. <laughs> creature of the United States. I can tell you Thanksgiving would be a lot different. It'd be a lot different. And also, like, we think that we see a bald eagle in the sky and we see nobility, integrity, you know? But surely we're also pasting some notions from our kind of cultural inheritance onto that eagle because I don't see a wild turkey and think nobility, <laughs> courage. I think what are you doing on the road in the, like get back in the woods? <laughs> you know, I don't take that kind of cultural inheritance and paste it onto the wild Turkey. Cause I don't have a cultural inheritance associated with a wild Turkey. Right. You, there wasn't 275 years of right, right. wild Turkey nobility happening. Yeah. Being passed on. <laughs> I just, <laughs> can we go back uh, just very briefly to something that Heidi said, the ennobling, what was it? The ennobling effects on of chicken, chicken culture. culture. Chicken culture. Like that seems like this thing that Heidi is like, like she has her own Twitter account somewhere, and that's like her one woman agenda is like, can we the finally ennobling. ennoble chicken culture? chicken culture? No one is it's talking at, about at this. chicken at chicken ennobler. Chicken nobler. Chicken yeah, nobler. You know what? You know who did something about this big problem? Walter Wengerin Jr. <laughs> finally, people He's are talking about it. Gap. Kathy. Yes. He's filling yeah. the gap. He's standing in the gap. Yep. Well. Okay, this has been the episode where we kind of, Tim and I kind of complain and Heidi has to put up with it. And we won't do that again in these next it's couple. Also the com- it's also the episode where listeners are finally like, yeah, Tim turned 50. He finally, he's the old grouch that we thought that he was. <laughs> Did you hear him complaining about the book of the Dun Cow? You kids, this book is so. I just Back don't in my get day, it. We normal books. <laughs> <laughs> this is the we one give the episode with Tim finally goes over the hill. I think oh. it's working. Here's why it's working. Because I am crazy about this book. And so we need and it's it's 
it's divisive. Like it's the kind of book that not everyone's going to be crazy about. We need a dissenting point of view. And Tim, you, you are filling in that gap. I am filling. Oh, I'm man, standing Tim's in that gap. New kind of character on this show. <laughs> my back hurts, you guys. I got to go. That was a joke. That was like an illusion. To it's because you were walking uphill both ways, wasn't it? It's right in the snow. Okay, Heidi, what are a couple more passages that you love before we go? Um, I also really liked the, hold on, I'm trying to figure out, I didn't, I like this book so much. I haven't read the last section, but I read all the way up to here last week. And so I'm not remembering exactly where it starts. Um, this particular section, um, I really like the, um, was the toad thing? Like the, you know, when the toad is kind of taking care of the chicks for a little bit, the unborn chicks. Everybody who's listening, one of my favorite things about like, this show is like the facial expressions to get passed back and forth in certain moments. Yeah, and I gave David a, like a toad repulsion Heidi, face. Heidi's like trying to figure something out and like looking for something excitedly, and Tim's just like. Dude, the toad is so gross. The toad is gross. The toad yeah. is so gross. Um, and the toad is kind of like a for a second a dissenter within the SS. Did you notice that he's like, man, this mm-hmm. has gone too far. I can't let this right. happen anymore. He dies. He dies because of that. <laughs> he briefly dissents and then he dies. Um, <laughs> what, what scene are you, look, are you looking for? The scene with the toad. Yeah, hold on. Okay, this first paragraph I of part two. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's on page 79 and this whole idea, Tim, David and I were talking about this at the, on the Q and a episode with Ian for the Lord of the Rings. Um, and we were talking about how with the ring of power, um, uh, that they, it, it just ends up, whoever wields the ring ends up destroying everything that they're attempting to control, mm, mm. right? And that, that's the nature of evil, that and the desire, the, the fallen desire is to rule, but then what ends up happening is that it just creates destruction, right? Mm. Widespread destruction. And that was explored explicitly in this chapter, um, chapter 11, which is the first chapter of part two. And it's titled Cockatrice Rules His Land to Its Utter Destruction. And it yeah. talks about how the land essentially implodes under the wicked leadership of, of Cockatrice. Um, and he dwells under the Terebinth Oak, um, which is a biblical place where the pagans used to do pagan sacrifices, in scripture. And so they're bringing this whole idea, which I think is attempting to connect cockatrice with the pagan tradition as if he's kind of this like ruling pagan over the land. And so then you have the, the contrast between these two chicken coops, again, to the ennobling of chicken culture, um, Finally. What, you have the kingdom of God being ruled by Chanticleer kingdom of God on earth. And then the kingdom of the world being, being ruled by this pagan birthed from this dark and distorted ritual, right. Um, which is very medieval and very pagan at the same time so um then uh this first paragraph i just thought the writing was amazing and so creepy just has this like i think one of the things he's best at is creating like a really creepy atmosphere um 
so here we go. Cockatrice never buried the bones of his father, nor ever again seemed to think of them. Cynics lay ragged in his little heap to the left of the coop, door, day and night, untouched. Blowflies saw an opportunity and took it. They slipped underneath his feathers and massed their tiny yellow eggs by the thousands against his ancient flesh. And when the right time had passed, maggots lived in his body. They ate through his eyes until Cynix was sightless before heaven. They ate his tongue and Cynix was speechless. They squirmed through his old wooden heart. They dwelt in the little sack of his stomach. They were the only life left in the rooster. And and that for but a little while, because cynics had died exhausted with remarkably little meat on his bones. That description is vivid and it's powerful and it's allegorical without being an allegory, mm-hmm, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, right? Um, and it begins then, it launches off his fictional treatise on the nature of evil and how evil destroys itself and brings upon itself its own destruction until there's nothing left to rule. And then it has to go out looking for more to consume. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that, sorry, I'm done. Well, one of the things that I like about this book is that it seems like a cross. It seems like it's got medieval ideas with this Ptolemaic Mm -hmm. worldview and um, but it's presented in this sort of style of Edgar Allan Poe or a Nathaniel Hawthorne short story. It reads like early American literature, but presents this medieval worldview. And so that's, and it's interesting to me how he is, he's clearly ingested and is then <laughs> spitting out uh, you're trying these, not to say regurgitate yeah, yeah. <laughs> these, these different these different traditions and then he's participating in both of them in a way like formally the way he structures his sentences the way he creates mood it, it sounds like young goodman brown it sounds like the cask of amontillado it sounds like something like that um <clears throat> or and like i said there's like a, a kind of a poe vibe to a lot of this uh, um, Carver or some someone like that, but then again, it's this medieval. It, much like how when you read Tolkien, it's like it reads British, right? It mm-hmm, reads mm-hmm. like he is from the same tradition as like Thomas Hardy and mm-hmm. you know so forth, um, Chaucer and Shakespeare, and certainly there is elements of of all of that in this book as well. But that creepiness feels really American, and I, so for mm-hmm. me, I like that. Um, that's one thing I appreciate. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that passage up. He says in the, in the afterword or whatever it's at the, yes, the afterword. And he says about the book, he says, um, he's talking about the different use of genre and how he's melding medieval genres to the modern novel. I um, mean, he speaks directly to that. And he says, as Milton chose epic to frame the grand drama of humankind, so I used elements of that genre for Duncow, councils, bees, and battles, as well as his elevated themes of good and evil. But the tone could not have imitated his noble sonority. Great word his earnest sobriety. Our times call for humor, for a sort of self-deprecating use of the genre that once upon a time defined whole peoples and their cultures. Presently, we are too diverse to think a single story defines us. Right, so he's intentionally lowering the tone uh, 
to be a modern novel while bringing in the epic themes and motifs and symbolism of an, a time that's already passed. You know, that's he's saying like this as such a I can't write a work like that. I can't write like Milton or Dante, but I like what they were doing. And so I'm going to bring in their elements, but I'm trying to write a modern novel. I think in some ways this novel could have stood. I cannot, I cannot believe I'm about to say this. Say it, wait. David, say Lord, it. Lord, help me. Another hundred pages. What? David <laughs> Kern. We thought we knew you. I, I wouldn't have read it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I say as I'm literally holding. Wow. Like Anna Karenina and I sitting in front of me because we're about Atta to dig boy. into that. Atta but what I mean boy. is... <laughs> The, you know, the, like what happens in the Lord of the Rings or the great science fiction and the great fantasy epics is there is this comprehensive world building, which allows you to get swept up in it. That I think that sometimes this book lacks because you have the symbols and you have these characters and you have the consequences and all that. But what I'm having a hard time getting into, this is coming out of what he's saying here. What I'm having a hard time getting into is how the world works why it works the way it does. What does it look like? Like to me, I'm like, it says there's a river and there's a coop and stuff like that, but I could like actually having more lore for the place would help me internalize a lot of this stuff that he's writing about there. And so I wonder if he was probably like, you know, he didn't want to write a really long book or he was trying to avoid, you know, boring people or whatever, but I could just see that stuff that he's talking about there. Um, you know, when he talks about, um, see if I can find what you're just reading there. That's at on page here. 244. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we're too diverse to think a single story defines us. Um, and he talks about how he, you know, right after that, how he, he knew the general, the novel's general protagonist would be the community of the meek Chanticleer's coop and all things related to it. And that, that's what got me thinking. It's like, there's so much, of that world, of that coop, that coop world that we're kind of just like left out of um, that's passed by really quickly that makes it hard for me to like settle into it. Now, if I read it again, maybe that gets solved. What do you think of that, Heidi? Or do you think it just, uh, that's just- I actually think you're right. And I, I think that there's some legitimate criticisms of of the gaps within um, pacing, point of view, and motivation, as both of you have brought up, I think that that's, um, I, I think that that's fair. I think that we have a couple of things happening. One is we have a feudal society, right? That's very ordered, and everybody mm-hmm. knows their place. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also then have a bestial life. We have animal life, uh, which is governed by instinct and not by motivation. Um, And so I think that some of those gaps are perhaps intentional on his part because he's attempting to explore, you know, it's moderns who are concerned with motivation. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Right. That's the big question of modern life and the modern novel. Um, to the medievals, they never they never addressed motivation. They don't address motivation in mythology either. You just do stuff. You just do it. Because it's the film, right? fulfillment of the role that you occupy. It's the role. And that's one of the things that he's getting at, right, um, is, is this idea that there's a kindly theme. That's a medieval term for um, like the kindly theme of fire is to go upward. So when sparks fly upward, it's because it's fulfilling its role. 
right? Um, and so that's the why ant's job the is to work. Yes, to work, to work, the, to work. Yeah, exactly. And the fox's job is to. Uh, it isn't to protect the chick. It's in a sense, he's taken out of his natural order and given to protect chicks. That's not what foxes do, right? Even a benevolent fox. And so he's not indicted or condemned for that within the world of the story. Nobody blames him because that's not a fox's job. It was actually Chanticleer's failure because he gave the wrong man the wrong job, right? And so that and, and that's kind of implicit within the structure of the motivations within the characters of this novel. Now, I am not sure it totally works, though. If that was if that's what Walter Wenger Jr. was going for, I'm not sure it works because sometimes it there's these gaps that modern audiences are like that just came out of nowhere. So if he's trying to go for the medieval hierarchy and then and animal nature defines motivation not like some kind of internal drive the way moderns think about it. I'm not sure it totally works because I don't think that the narrative addresses that enough to make it stand. Like a narrative, any narrative, especially an allegorical one, has to convey some kind of coherent messages that sustain those abstractions or choices within the, within the story. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that this totally does that without some kind of specialized knowledge, which I don't think people ought to have to have to understand a book. And I think that's where the, you know, more world building. Mm-hmm. Exactly more, to your point. World building is what sucks you in. Yeah. It's, yes. what, it's what creates. Kind of, yes. World building ultimately. in there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. World building ultimately is what creates pathos, in my opinion. Right. It's not just that an action, that something happens to somebody that you kind of learn to care about. There's a whole larger context in which it happens because it happens to that character, but it's also impacting everything else around it. Like, and, the, and what happens to that character happens to the world. Um, but, um, okay. Can I let, say one thing before yeah, yeah, we, I, was, I, I know we're trying to you. wrap up? I just finished reading, not that long ago, Dune. I think I mentioned it maybe mm-hmm. a month ago that I read Dune. I, I'm really looking forward to seeing that movie because I haven't just been to the theater and seen like a great big cinematic epic. I just kind of want to see it for that reason. Yeah. That being said, I'm not crazy about that book. With one exception, the world building aspect of Dune is incredible, incredible. And it makes up for so many, what I think are profound shortcomings in like character development, like really bad character (laughs) development and like interiority is just completely Mm -hmm. lacking. But you're like, you know what? I can skate on by because the spice world that he's building is so profound. So all that to say... Hashtag more lore, David. I think you got a point. You're hashtagging. You really just have just this part of my youthful vigor. Back in my day, we used to create these hashtags. hashtags. Nowadays, they just talk tick or whatever it is. Am I hashtagging right? (laughs) Is that what the kids are doing? Was I just hashtagging? (laughs) Don't ever do it again. Um, Hashtag more lore. That is so. It's good. I it just writes. jumped on Goodreads to see what the reviews of this book are because I'm always curious on a book oh, like this. Yeah. Four point zero three stars, which means it's pretty good. Usually, like I don't if once it's in the fours, it means something. But um, there's a, if you go look, there are a couple of people that are my friends on Goodreads have said some some really like one guy. I think this is actually Pete Peterson. I think it's Andrew Peterson's brother, but he said purely amazing. 
one person on here, he says, he gives it three stars and says, it's on the plus side of good. <laughs> I like that review. I mean, not, I don't necessarily agree, but I like it's actually better than that, but on the plus side of good. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I just love reading reviews because this is the kind of book that can be so divi- divided. You know, like, one so side or the other. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, you want anything else, Heidi? Nope. Mm-mm. Tim? I'm good. All right, Heidi, it's now time for your uh, happy birthday guitar solo. Oh, I'm ready, yeah. Heidi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just going to get comfortable. Yeah, that's definitely a little bit like a. Um, that was the music of the spheres. You didn't get that's it. It was definitely. Like, oh, it sounded song. strangely yeah. like a like banjo. A, yeah. I didn't know <laughs> the music of the spheres was done to a banjo. It's not spheres, it's spheres. <laughs> Well, no, the music of the spheres the is under a banjo. The spheres is a banjo. <laughs> we right, well, need Tim. more lore. Just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> more lore. Uh, Tim, truly, happy birthday. We love you. Thank you, David. I love Can't you wait too. to see you next month. Can't wait to see you guys next month. Let's organize. <laughs> like unionize? Did you say let's unionize? <laughs> All right, we're well, going to have another fight again. With that. David's like, no organizing. Right, I was about to say, <laughs> that's not the thing that the boss recommends. The boss never recommends you you unionize. Just different kinds. Just depends on the boss. Depends on the union. Depends on the kind of organization. In this case, I'm going to end this episode now. (laughs) For Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, who, of course, is the birthday boy. I'm David Kern. Till next time. Happy reading. Happy reading.